As the Pentagon tries to move more and more towards modern software development practices, it's become clear the DOD budgeting system is a bad fit because of its various colors of money. Does that agile development program count as a procurement, R&D, operations and maintenance? Now, Congress has given a handful of programs permission to experiment with using just one color of money for software. One of them is the Navy's Maritime Tactical Command and Control System. For the difference that's all made, Federal News Network's Jared Serbu spoke with the program manager for Navy Command and Control Systems, Captain David Gast. MTC2, Maritime Tactical Command and Control, is intended to be a planning and battle management aid platform for the Navy. It's to allow us to automate and streamline a lot of the processes that have been done manually and using things like uh, Excel and PowerPoint in the past to lay out strike group schedules, fleet schedules, uh, Navy-wide schedules, for example, uh, and what we're going to be doing hour by hour, day by day, and put that all into one central location where you can see all the information you need to see to make the decisions you need to make about what we do, uh, developing different courses of action and contingencies. So broadly, what made this program a good candidate for a different uh, single color of money that's, that's a little less complicated to work with? So the program, even before the BA-8 pilots started, was already moving in the direction of agile software development processes uh, and really uh, starting to move into DevSecOps, which is where you do development, security, and operations all together uh, as much as you can in a single environment with a very tight feedback loop from the operations side back to the developer side. And we were focused very much, we, we knew we needed to break the sort of large, complex piece of software down into smaller chunks that would allow us to iterate on each piece of the software individually. And BA8 is really perfect for doing that. Uh, as you know, the sort of traditional for the last, you know, 30 at least years has been, you know, you have money set aside for doing development, you have money set aside for doing operations, money set aside for doing procurements, uh, and, you know, very tight constraints on what you can do in each of those aspects. But because we're constantly iterating and constantly developing each part of the software, uh, BA8 is exactly what this program needed to be able to accomplish what it had to. So we can uh, make a small improvement, add a small feature to the program, present it to the users in the fleet, get their rapid feedback on it, and then iterate on it. And then they largely stay out there until something drives an update or a change. Uh, but that can happen at any point along the way. So uh, again, with the traditional way, it's it's you've developed it, and then it's in sustainment for the rest of time. Yeah, in, in this particular program, give folks a sense of the cadence of your development and your releases. Sure. So uh, the program operates on uh, what we call sprints. Uh, they run on two-week sprints. So at the beginning of the sprint, they have a sprint planning meeting that says, what are we going to work on in the next two weeks? And at the end of the sprint, the team presents to uh, the, the sort of fleet representative product owner uh, saying, here's what we've developed. And they do a demonstration of here's how it works. 
in most cases, we actually capture a video of that demonstration, which is then later used to illustrate to the fleet, here's how you use this feature. Um, so actually in the in the help section of the of the app, they can go down and see a whole bunch of videos on, you know, here's how to use the different features. But we can and have developed features for this application, uh, a new capability as quickly as two weeks. Um, sometimes they take longer if they're more complex or there's a lot of moving parts. Uh, it may take, you know, two, three, four sprints to get through things. But even still, compared to the traditional pace of uh, software development in the Department of Defense, uh, you know, a month is is pretty fast to be able to develop a new feature. This may be impossible because it's kind of a counterfactual, but, but you know, mm -hmm. having, having lived in both of those worlds, thinking again about MTC2, what do you think would be different if you were still wrestling with RDT&E and procurement, uh, different colors, uh, di different buckets? I mean, would you would you not not be able to do those sprints as quickly or would you be able to do them quickly, but there's still more overhead? What What's different in a world where you're doing the traditional funding? So in the case of MTC2, where we basically started over with the code, and I think you've seen the history uh, in, in some of the information we gave you, there was a there was a prototype version of MTC2 that we put on an aircraft carrier for a couple of deployments, got lots and lots of fleet feedback on it. And we realized that to make it do what they really, really wanted to do, uh, we had to break it apart and move to these faster sprint cycles and all that, that sort of thing. Because it's fairly early in its lifetime life cycle, that was still RDT&E budget. Um, so we probably would have been able to do the two-week sprints and the rapid iterations. The problem we would have run into is the deployment uh, piece because that, other than, you know, for a, a limited deployment, has to be either procurement or sustainment dollars uh, to roll that out there. And we've rolled this program out very, very quickly and intend to roll it out even faster going forward. The timeline on that shifted several times as we realized we had to basically throw away the code base we had before, start over, replicate the same functions, but with a better, more secure, more reliable, more agile software uh, architecture that initially slowed down our fielding rate. But once we got that minimum viable product out there and on the first ship, we were able to put it on the second ship a couple of weeks later and the next ship the week after that and go back and provide the first update to the first ship a couple of weeks after that. And we're actually now about to release the fifth uh, version of MTC2 the, with new features and new upgrades since January. We've put it on 15 ships and two shore stations since January, and we're averaging about one a week uh, after that. And that rapid pivot from development to deployment uh, would have been much, much harder with the traditional funding. Doing it in those small chunks, does it also reduce the chances that you're going to break something really important and really huge? Absolutely. That's a, that is a fantastic question. The way we've broken it apart is there's well-defined interfaces between each of the pieces of MTC2. Right now, MTC2 is over 40 containers make up the application. The first instance that we put on a ship was 35 containers. Now, about six months later, we're up to over 40. And that number will just keep going up because rather than having to go back into the code base and make changes in there uh, to make it talk to other things, you just 
bring a sec separate piece of code and each of them does run independently. So back to your question, yes, absolutely. If one container crashes, for instance, the whole application doesn't crash. It's just that one uh, container. Uh, one of the uh, great illustrations that I, I found out as we were moving down this path actually is like Amazon.com, their website. The buy it now button on that website is its own microservice, its own container. If that fails, you can still do the add to cart and it's completely unrelated to the buy it now because why? Amazon wants to make sure you can buy stuff from them uh, if you're in the mood to do so. In the same way, if one feature of MTC2 crashes for some reason, all the rest of the pieces of it will still continue to work in exactly the same way. Captain David Gast, the program manager for Navy Command and Control Systems, speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And I, and I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? 
because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it. Okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching that vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that. We rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right. When I'm standing there and I feel this, and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative, it's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, d describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that, believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It, it, it's, it's needed. Uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice that 
whole approach because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest. Here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm I'm gonna have to elaborate on two. Yeah. If that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.